welcome to Searching for Mana, the podcast that investigates the mana. That's the superpower in some of the most influential leaders who are building the future in tech innovation and finance. I'm Lloyd Wired, a London-born entrepreneur and headhunter with over 15 years experience on a mission to discover what drives our guests to succeed. How have they got to the top? What attributes have excelled in their career? Listen to find out. Welcome to Searching for Mana. Welcome to Searching for Mana. Welcome. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. So Sam Copperman, uh, sort of country manager at Luno of the UK. Um, wh- whereabouts are you at the moment? Are you, are you in the UK? Are you, are you abroad? Yeah, I'm in London at the moment. Our office has opened up a couple of weeks back. So we're kind of slowly getting back in, back into things, which is nice. Very nice. Very nice. Yeah, no, it's, it's always good to, to start heading back towards the office. I think, like, we're, obviously we're back in. You can see this is far too nice to be my living room. Um, so it's just good to get some semblance of normality, get the buzz back, that sort of thing. Um, so, yeah, no, it's, it's always always lovely there. Um, I mean, what, what are you up to at the moment, Sam? You know, how, how, how are things going? Yeah, it's been a busy period in, in crypto, in our space. So obviously, beginning of the year, I'm sure everyone knows, um, there was a lot of attention about what was happening with Bitcoin and cryptocurrency in general. <clears throat> and we've all kind of gone through this wave of craziness, in like basically for Q1 and Q2. Um, and it's settled down a little bit over the last few weeks, which in a way is pretty good for the businesses like ours. We can kind of take stock and see what we actually need to do. Um, but it's always exciting, like in this industry, like going through these cycles. Never, you never really know what's around the corner. Um, but yeah, it looks like the summer potentially, in terms of market action, will be a little bit more relaxed, and we'll have some sure. time to kind of plan for the rest of the year. Amazing. And to just just for the audience, as much as anything, Sam, can you can you just give a quick overview towards you know sort of how you how you characterize Luno? Sure. So um, we're what, probably what you would call a cryptocurrency exchange, although that term could be a little bit misleading. When you think of an exchange, you think of somewhere where you kind of maybe do, do some trading. Um, but we're essentially a platform that makes it really easy to buy cryptocurrency, mainly Bitcoin and a few others. Um, so primarily we use as a mobile app um, across kind of 40 countries. And um, just recently, I think we, we passed 8 million customers, which is quite a big milestone for us. In the UK, we're still kind of fairly young. That's kind of the business that I oversee is, is our UK branch. Um, but the mission is still really the same. I think the, the vast majority of people still don't really understand what cryptocurrency is. Um, many want to get involved, but don't really know how to get started. So we try to kind of simplify the process and give them like a really easy app um, to get you know to get started, and and you talked about making cryptocurrency accessible for as many people as as possible. You know what what do you think the value of, of that is? You know where, where do you see the potential in, in cryptocurrency as as a whole? I guess um, there's like so much opportunity in cryptocurrency, and actually, the kind of what I find interesting about it is that no one really has any of the answers yet. I mean, the technology is only you know a dec- decade old, um, so it's really early days. Even people who have been around for, 
for most of that time, still don't really know what's going to be around the corner. So it's anyone's game. Um, and it touches like so much of people's lives. So I mean, finance is one of those industries that hasn't really changed a lot. And we kind of see um, some of these like ch- challenger banks like Monzo and Revolut have quickly like, you know, come out of nowhere over the last few years. Um, and fintech has now become you know, a huge part of just tech in general. But they're still, in a way, building on top of what's already been exist, you know, already existed before that. Um, so if you think about like kind of the user experience you receive when when you use a challenger bank, it's so much better than you know your traditional experience. Um, but still, all the rails and the infrastructure, everything behind it is the same essentially. Whereas cryptocurrency, in a way, is like a parallel universe in in some ways. Um, the technology is totally different and kind of what it can do to change, you know, the whole financial system is potentially game changing, but then like any new technology, it's just like, how do we make the most of it? Is it used for, you know, you know, in the early days, people would say it can be used for illicit activity. I think that myth has been kind of been busted now. Um, but now it's kind of up to like all the companies and everyone involved in the space to really build on top of that technology and uh, make the most of it so that it really does become um, something which people can use instead of, instead of you know, traditional finance. For sure. And um, obviously, you know, the whole sort of DeFi versus sort of CeFi is like a, an argument that, um, you know, sort of been raging, you know, wh- where do you think sort of Luno fits into that ecosystem? Um, and what, what do you kind of sort of foresee, I guess, for, for DeFi as a whole, really? You know, is, is it something that, you know, you're, you're personally passionate about? Do you think it's, it's something we're quite a long way off? Like, where, where would you stand on that? I mean, yeah, DeFi is something which, like, has come out maybe in the last couple of years. And, um I think in a way it's almost like how people thought about Bitcoin in the early days is now is now DeFi. There's so many opportunities, so many really cool startups popping up doing very cool things with um through DeFi. But um also no one really knows like I wouldn't be able to really explain what is DeFi and I don't think anyone really can at the moment. And that's the kind of stage we're at. Like no one actually even knows exactly what DeFi entails and so I think um, already our product uses it to a certain extent because just as an example you can kind of earn interest on your Bitcoin and that's in a way you could, you could label that as a, as a DeFi innovation um, but there are many other things which but I mean that's quite easy to understand earning interest on an asset but there are other things which are totally kind of on the other side of, of DeFi which are really revolutionary and kind of hard to understand so that like the specter of what people call this like this new um, this new landscape of DeFi is huge um and like obviously it's like it's definitely something which is going to impact all the crypto businesses and and probably traditional finance as well but again it's just a question of like what will actually um you know stand the test of time um because many projects as we've seen unfortunately kind of very short term and don't really get past yeah. a few months or a couple of years yeah exactly i mean we obviously have sort of you know with what shapeshift's done today or in the last couple of days at least anyway sort of that sort of fairly radical sort of decentralized move um and then obviously sort of luna's sort of slightly maybe slightly more sort of centralized platform servicing that decentralized sort of space i guess you know it's, it's always an interesting one 
I mean, with regard to how you might sort of differentiate yourself from other sort of, you know, digital asset exchange platforms, so, you know, your Krakens, your Coinbases, your, your, your Binances, how, how would you sort of do that? I know you alluded to sort of, you know, facilitating the process and making it as easy as possible for, for your customers. You know, is, is, is that how you'd sort of differentiate yourself? Or is there, is there any other sort of way by which you'd, you'd say, you know, you're offering uh, a different service there? Yeah, I mean, there's something which we, we think about all the time. But again, I think the main reason why I find this space so interesting is because, yeah, it's early days and this whole the competitive landscape, in a way, isn't that competitive because there aren't really a huge number of crypto exchanges that have built the right infrastructure and have like got the right team to be able to offer their products at scale. And so what everyone's doing, actually, I think is helping the space in general. And so, I mean... I'm very happy to to mention you know specific competitors like Crypto.com, who, for example, have signed pretty cool sponsorships with like Formula One and just recently recently with the UFC. I think that kind of stuff helps the whole industry massively. Um, so I think the stage when we really start when competition really heats up, um, we're still. Quite a, quite a few months or, or years away from that. Um, but just like the way I, I see Luna myself and how it differentiates the way I think about it is that yeah, our focus is very much on people who are totally new um, to Bitcoin, totally new to crypto. And we, I think it's really important to put ourselves into the shoes of someone who actually has no idea about this space because like that's what... It's really hard for all of us to do. Everyone working at crypto yeah. exchanges, as soon as you've had maybe six months or a year within the space, it's already hard to relate to a beginner. Like you're already so far into this kind of this world of cryptocurrency. Um, so I think that kind of relentless focus to understand what it's like to, to kind of get into this industry for the first time and, and to kind of weigh up an investment in Bitcoin versus other options. I think that's where like our focus um, as Luno is, and particularly in the UK, that's why I'm kind of very keen to see what we can do to kind of relate to the, you know, the 99% of people um, who yeah. have yet to kind of take the first step into crypto. Sure. And as, as someone who, you know, recently sort of invested myself sort of earlier this year, basically with, with my brother, um, we've actually sort of seen, you know, the, the value of our investments go down quite significantly, to be honest with you. Um, you know, it's always a, exactly, yeah, um, no, medium term for sure. Um, but no, it's, a, it's, it's always, a, always a fun one. Um, just with regards to Luno sort of obviously being sort of fairly Bitcoin sort of um, focused at the moment, at least, at least in terms of its sort of primary um, focus potentially. You know, as, as sort of we're seeing, you know, sort of altcoins sort of develop, you know, we're seeing sort of, you know, obviously Ethereum is the obvious one, you know, Poker, Cardano, other such projects. You know, how, how do you sort of see sort of, you know, the, the slight sort of shift we've seen in the market cap at least and sort of the breakdown of that? So, you know, whereas Bitcoin was incredibly dominant before, it's still fairly dominant, um, but we are seeing that sort of slight shift. Um, you know, how do you sort of foresee that with regard to people joining crypto for the first time? You know, obviously Bitcoin's the headline name, and so you know, it's, it's probably going to continue to be that for for the you know the, certainly the short future. How, how do you kind of sort of see that evolving? Do, do, do you think that you know the, the ecosystem will change there with altcoins? How how do you sort of envisage that? Yeah, um, it's really hard to say uh, in terms of altcoins. I mean, what we know, obviously. 
mean, this is the same thing as trying to guess the price. I mean, just just yeah. because people work, <laughs> people think that yeah, I work in crypto, I have more information. Very few people, yeah. <laughs> Honestly, my brother doesn't believe that for a moment now. Now he's <laughs> now I've given him that advice. <laughs> get it wrong if you get it wrong once, then forget about it. Yeah, no, that's um, I've got some serious Christmas and birthday present buying to, to do this year for that. I have to say, so <laughs> CDA carry on with um, you know, every month for every week that little bit of, but yeah, that's not financial advice, of course, but. <laughs> for sure. <laughs> but yeah, to answer your point, you know, on altcoins in general, um, I think as Luno, what the way we've kind of thought about it is that um, it takes some time for a particular you know, new token, new coins to kind of prove themselves. Um, and there are a lot of different things that we look at when we consider whether to, to, you know, to list a coin. Um, and actually for a while, we haven't done anything in terms of new listings just because things are changing so quickly as well. So kind of, again, we're kind of taking stock there. But personally, I think it's super interesting to see like the top 10, how that's been moving around um and the emergence of you know certain cryptos like cardano um i have like quite a good you know ex-colleague now like a good friend who um for ages was banging on about cardano <laughs> and there's always yeah. it's the same way that someone in the early days would always talk about bitcoin and most of us would ignore them and think that there's is just like this crazy crazy dude in the corner um that's essentially what, what this friend was within crypto talking about Cardano. And in a way, it's been kind of like proven right because some of the fundamentals there clearly in the project have turned out to, to work. Um, and yeah, it's, it's kind of grown, grown in popularity. So I think generally, I see myself as someone who's still fairly new to the space. So I would never even like dare to like kind of pick one altcoin over, over another when like, you know, um, when speaking to others about what they should invest in. Bitcoin, I already feel like quite confident that that's you know, a strong investment over, has been proven to be so over the last you know, 10 years. Um, but personally, yeah, I'm like really interested to see altcoins, how they emerge over the next you know, year or two. And I mean, that's also the place where you see huge changes within cryptocurrency. So if like speculation is, is kind of why you're leaning into this industry. And for many of us, that is that is part of the appeal to kind of un- see what rockets and what goes to the moon quickly. Um, then yeah, look, <laughs> looking at the altcoins, even outside the top 10, is kind of something it's worth doing um, on a regular basis yeah. because you never know how things are gonna change. For sure. For sure. And I'm, I'm certainly not in a position to be able to sort of, you know, promote other podcasts and things like that. I mean, it's, it's pretty pretty traitorous of me but I, I don't know if you've seen the the podcast with sort of and um, charles hoskinson sort of lex friedman on it it's like a five hour number gotta be honest i'm, I'm still plugging away through it. I've, I've got most of the way there but um it's, it's certainly a long one it's, it's it's a good insight to be fair into sort of as, as you mentioned like, it's like sort of cardano mania um just sort of people you know obviously you know the, the founder charles hoskinson is going to be pretty pretty strong on it you'd think but you, you do very much get the buzz and you, you do very much hear it as you know one of the you know, something that people are very passionate about, at least. I mean, in, in terms of to sort of bring it back a little bit towards, you know, Luno being for sort of beginners and sort of having to, you know, the point you mentioned about having to almost forget your own sort of prior crypto knowledge and sort of put yourself in the feet of those who don't know much about crypto. You know, how, how do you find sort of kind of doing that? You know, is, is it something you can sort of 
bring sort of personal experience from in terms of your own journey into sort of Luna and crypto? Um, you know, and, and how do you kind of sort of go about sort of almost, I guess, sort of trying to forget as much as possible uh, to sort of, you know, um, keep the keep the user in, in mind? Yeah, I try to always think back to my the first few months when I really started getting into Bitcoin. And actually, Luna was part of that journey because when I joined uh, Luna, I actually still didn't own any cryptocurrency. Um, so it's quite quite an unusual probably path into the industry, like actually you know, joining a company without being like personally invested yet. Um, but I kind of saw the space as something interesting, generally as it kind of sits within fintech. Um, I come from a technology background, worked at like various tech businesses. So I came from to it from that angle. I was like, this is a space that's growing quickly. Clearly this business um, is interesting. And having joined Luno, then I was kind of, you know, had a ton of information to consume. I was kind of within the industry, kind of understood exactly the potential of, of Bitcoin and, you know, cryptocurrencies more broadly. Um, and then I kind of, yeah, started to get personally invested. But, um, and it, yeah. Yeah. And in, in terms of your own, sort of to bring it more onto, onto you now, Sam. You know, in, in terms of your own sort of um, career, you know, you're obviously a young guy in that sort of, um, in a very senior position there at Luna, so it's obviously great. Um, you know, do, do you mind sort of taking the, the audience through a, a little bit, you know, in terms of some of your earlier experiences? You know, obviously, um, you know, you, you, you spent your first year out of university in, in Belarus, um, as, as you kind of did. Um, you know, what, what were your experiences out there like? Yeah. Um, yeah, it was a really weird start to... My career. Um, so yeah, I think I graduated from UCL. It was like 2014. Um, like many people, kind of no idea really what I wanted to do. I actually had the whole kind of summer planned out already, and um, probably was thinking about consultancy or uh, or going into finance, um, maybe investment banking, something like that. And a friend of mine had just started interviewing for a business called Rocket Internet. And they're um, a German incubator. So essentially they take, usually the way they work is they, they would take um, ideas which have worked well in, in developed markets like the US and um, do something similar in you know, Eastern Europe or develop, um, emerging markets. Now that they've actually changed quite a bit and so they, they kind of come up with their own ideas and it's a bit broader. But back then that's kind of what they were known for. And I saw, I think, on Facebook, a random post around, you know, that they're launching a clone of Amazon in Eastern Europe. Um, and that they're just generally looking for students to apply for their various roles. So I decided to give it a go and um, had probably four or five interviews within the next three days and was told, you know, okay, um, on the weekend, why don't you just fly out to Minsk? Um, which is an offer no one would ever turn down. <laughs> Get on the green list, yeah. <laughs> exactly. I mean, back then, yeah. Um, and like we, they said, you know, uh, just see what happens. Uh, you'll have a contract, I think, you know, rolling on every month. And um, we'll probably send you some support. Over time, probably there'll be a local MD, but we want you to kind of launch the business. Um, and yeah, we'll kind of see how things go from there. 
And like Minsk, I, I, I knew very little about. And my background is I studied Russian, part of my family are Russian as well, so at least I knew the language. But apart from that, there was absolutely nothing that I could kind of lean on um, in terms of experience or anything like that. The only way, the only place I actually think I, I remembered Minsk from, there's a Friends episode where Phoebe's um, boyfriend is sent to Minsk. And, and, and like everyone's like, no, has no idea where that is. Um, yeah, she like never sees him again. So, so I was like, yeah, why not? Um, flew out and yeah, I think like the brief was, you know, hire some people, see what works and get back in touch if you have an issue. Um, and it was, yeah, it was really exciting, like as an opportunity yeah. like, in the first couple of months, just seeing what I could do. Um, and the way the lack of experience maybe works in my favor, favor, because I didn't really know like what was right or wrong. I just kind of used my instincts and thought like, if this more or less makes sense to what I think is logical, then I'll just go for it. Um, and yeah, it kind of worked out fairly well, uh, grew quickly, had a lot of support. There was almost no competition there as well. If you, like, if you think about kind of the budgets which Rocket, intru- Rocket Internet introduced. Um, and yeah, I found myself within a few months definitely wanting to stay there, having a team of 30 people, who, all of whom I've, I'd hired. And still, um, I hadn't even met anyone from the central team at <laughs> Rocket Internet in the business. Um, so it was incredibly fortunate that they, they kind of obviously trusted me um, and basically said, if you prove yourself, then fine. And if you don't, then you'll be replaced. And in a way, that's kind of a refreshing approach. Yeah, and in terms of that sort of sink or swim, I guess, sort of out in, you know, Minsk, I mean, how, how on earth, sort of in your first year, I guess, sort of out of university, did you go about sort of hiring 30 people? You know, obviously, as, as someone on the hiring side of things, myself, you know, how, how would you... And how, how did you go about it? You know, how are you? Obviously, Russian's not your necessarily your first language. I, I don't know sort of if it's a mother tongue of yours. You sort of mentioned you sort of speak that at home potentially, but like, um, you know, how how do you just go about the process of hiring sort of so many people there? Yeah, I went about it um, pretty badly, I think, <laughs> for like the first six months. Um, yeah. Again, there wasn't really much of a process. I, mean, I think everything that we kind of think about now as how it should be done in terms of recruitment and like the process you think about. Um, in a way, what I had is I just got rid of everything, all the preconceptions, which I had no idea about, and just um, interviewed people on instinct and kind of just thought, okay, can they do the job? And probably I'd always lean towards, yeah, probably they can, and give them an opportunity to do it. So, I mean, the probation periods, I mean, all, it was almost impossible not to have a probation period if you had a conversation with me because I was just like, okay, let's give it a go, start tomorrow morning, and by next week, either it works or it doesn't. Um, and again, I think within that setting and like the setup I had, I think you know that probably worked. We weren't really held, held back by any you know, processes, didn't need to have multiple stakeholders sign off or like weigh in, no culture interviews. That was basically just my my opinion as well. So, yeah, I think it definitely it definitely made me made me realise like, the importance of hiring the right people because I made a lot of mistakes as well for sure. 
Um, but because it was kind of done on a personal level, fortunately, kind of changing the team around um, didn't kind of pose a lot of issues. Whereas, you know, within companies, hiring, usually making bad hiring decisions, particularly in senior positions, um, can be one of the worst mistakes you can make. For sure. Um, and just, you know, from a from a sort of point of personal interest, I guess, you know, I, I come from sort of a, a languages background. That's sort of what I sort of studied myself at university. And in terms of that sort of cultural shift, you know, moving from, you know, London to, to Minsk, basically, you know, that whole sort of different way of doing things, that whole sort of, you know, different way of life, I guess. And I, I found sort of fairly strong differences even between, you know, London and London and Paris and, you know, London and um, Turin as well, like, you know, let, let alone between sort of, you know, Belarus, um, you know, how did you sort of, how, how did you find that? How did you find the adjustment there? Yeah, well, I think culturally it was, I knew what to expect because part of my family in Russia, I'd lived in, in Moscow. Um, and yeah, so in terms of language, there wasn't really a barrier there. And people from Eastern Europe and who are Russian and kind of from Slavonic descent, they're like a certain, they call it, you know, like a Dushevnist, which is something like around um, like cultural depth. And like it's very different to, to kind of a Western way of, of like thinking and doing things. So I kind of understood that part of it. Um, and it's definitely similar in Belarus because obviously it's like a former Soviet state. There are a lot of connections, sure. connections with, with Russia. The business side, though, was, was obviously different. So the way they operate... Um, usually was something even I wasn't really expecting. I'd heard from like my uncle who ran a business in Russia in the nineties, quite a few stories of like you know, illicit activity, no one really knowing what was happening, making money any way possible. So I kind of thought at the back of my mind, maybe that I'll come, come into contact with some of that stuff, but um, I wasn't really prepared for how prevalent that was through everything. So even like normal expenses, like you know, hiring, like renting an office, like hiring people, everything would be done with cash, and there'd be um, there'd always be some sort of like backhanded offer. So the, the number of times I tried to rent an office, and I was told, yeah, the price is going to be you know three k, but let's make it four k, and we'll give you one k back uh, per month, cash in hand. And I'd be like t- totally taken aback, um, but that's just like the, the, nor- the normal way of operating. I had to, you know, understand that's that's the way things are done. Um, and so, yeah, for us, it's really alien. But there, that's if you kind of refuse, obviously, you can find um, you know different suppliers, people who don't operate that way. But if you're just outright refusing people all the time, then you can't really make much progress. Um, so on the business side, definitely there's a lot of things for me to get used to. Um, also because my Russian is very much like within like a family setting. And as anyone would know, if you like know multiple languages, there's like business French or business Russian is very different. Yeah. <laughs> to, um, like colloquial kind of like family speaking um, Russian or any other language. Yeah, exactly. No, you're, you're preaching to the choir on that one. As someone who's, who's been fumbling around in, in French business schools for for the last while, so <laughs> it's it's something I know well. I mean, in terms of sort of issues you came across in your time in sort of Belarus, there, and um, you know, sort of from a you obviously mentioned sort of the slightly sort of dubious 
uh, ways of renting offices and, and that sort of side of things. You know, um, in, in terms of sort of wider issues you have there, you know, is, is there any sort of particular sort of tales you have or sort of stories you have from that? Yeah, I mean, there are so many different weird, weird things there. I mean, there was one guy who had like, connections to, to the president of Belarus who he ended up um, renting an office from. Um, and he wouldn't appear very often, but probably like once every couple of months, he would want to you know, go around and see who's actually renting his office space. And we started with probably, I don't know, like a 20 square meter, like a really small space and then ended up renting essentially like a whole floor. So he, he was like, who is this like 23 year old English guy who's just now <laughs> renting part of my, my building? I wanted to, wanted to at least have an intro. So there was one, one morning where he just invited me into his, his restaurant that he, that he owned. And I was like, yeah, let's have a quick conversation. Um, I said, like, do you want some, some tea? I have like the best tea in Minsk. Um, so I'm not going to refuse, like, sure, why not? You're British, there's, there's, no, there's no saying no there. Yeah. <laughs> it's required, like, let's, let's do it. Um, I taste the tea and there was definitely something in there. Like whatever, like this is obviously a guy who's, you know, over 60, he probably uses something to perk himself up in the morning. And there was, there was, you know, I could tell that this wasn't the kind of standard English breakfast. So um, yeah. that, was, that was an interesting one where I kind of spent the rest of the day buzzing after a conversation with, <laughs> a conversation with, uh, with this guy. So yeah, lots of unexpected things. But also in terms of like running the business there, you never knew what was what was really going to happen. Um, a lot of the kind of even paying our employees had to be done in cash. Um, and like, I don't know if you guys know, like I'm sure your audience might be aware that um, in Belarus, they used to have like the Belarusian ruble, which, and this is very topical with cryptocurrency, about a ton of inflation. So that, that's the kind of economy that actually would really benefit from, from crypto. Um, and it was so much, it was so bad that um, they've actually had to change their, their currency. So instead of having like so, so many zeros on the end of every banknote, they've, they've brought it back down. But when I was there, something like a million Belarusian rubles would be a tenner. Um, so if you can imagine paying 30 employees in cash, going to the, going to the bank and withdrawing half a billion Belarusian yeah. rubles into a suitcase and taking it across <laughs> Minsk um, when you're 20, 23. Um, yeah. And then, yeah. So it was a really unusual time, but like probably the best. I couldn't, yeah, have, couldn't, like have, a, couldn't have expected a, a better way to kind of be introduced to business and make tons of mistakes and learn very quickly. Um, so yeah, I was really fortunate. Yeah, it's, it's like the, it's like the Pablo Escobar story where he's got all sort of the money, he's lighting the fire with it, except from an incredibly budget version, like a street value of sort of like ten quid. Yeah, um, and in terms of sort of um, up, you know, maybe from sort of um, prior conversations, having in terms of sort of uh, legal issues you've potentially had and sort of potentially sort of being arrested out there, um, is is that something that you you encountered? Um, well, I was, I was never actually arrested, fortunately, in, in Minsk, but um, yeah, definitely, like there, there'd be issues because you know, being on the right side of the law when you're building a, a business really quickly there and you don't really know exactly what to do, it's always a tough one. 
Um, and to speed things up, I'd be opening entities. We had to open a few legal entities and I'd be opening up in, in my name. And then at a later stage, we would think about how to like change that structure so it's under you know, the Rocket Internet branch. Um, I'm sure they won't mind me, me saying this because this is actually standard practice I mean, to, to move quickly within business. Um, but the issues we had really in Belarus was actually, it was really hard to, to change things. So even probably a year in, these entities were still purely kind of solely owned and managed by myself. Um, and when I really decided to kind of move on into a different role, which is more regional, and I kind of left the country, um, then I would still kind of be responsible for what was happening there. And so when issues around tax um, were there or any kind of legal issues, the fact that I wasn't present was a big, was a big problem. So um, for, for, for a period of time, was, I probably couldn't even return to Minsk um, because we had, we had so many, yeah. <laughs> so many outstanding items which should have been taken care of but couldn't have been because, you know, I was um, traveling across other countries, um, but for now I'm sure it's fine. I'll have to, te- I'll have to test it at some point. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it, absolutely, absolutely. I mean, just in terms of that sort of bewilderment, I guess, sort of, you know, of, of you know, I guess people in Belarus, a 23-year-old Brit or, you know, guy from London sort of being out there. It's, it's a story that, you know, one, one of my good friends basically actually sort of studied Russian at university himself. Um, they actually went on holiday again, as you kind of do, to, to Kazakhstan. Uh, just to sort of kind of see what it was like, just to sort of explore with it. Um, and, you know, they, they basically sort of uh, got the wrong visa, long story short, and got arrested again at the Russian sort of uh, border there. Um, they sort of had got sort of deported in Kazakhstan for about three weeks, which I think was described as quite a, quite a slow three weeks. Um, but either way, like, it was, it was just sort of the, the confusion because they're, they're actually out in Russia, sort of Siberia sort of way. So why sort of, you know, th- you know two middle-class uh, sort of, you know, students basically from the UK, sort of, you know, spending so much time out in, in Eastern Russia and sort of that, that part of the world. And um, yes, yeah, it's it a very strange one. It's, it's almost like, um, you know, them having to sort of convince them and sort of be like, you know, oh, we're just here for our university studies. Uh, you know, we find Tomsk a really interesting city. It, it, it just sounded a bit like, um, it's sort of like the Novichok where they sort of said, you know, Salisbury Cathedral is really interesting. You know, we, we love seeing that. So similar sort of vibe, I think, with that. Um, oh, Obviously, sort of post um, sort of Belarus, um, you know, uh, you took quite a sort of big sort of career shift at that point as well. Um, you know, so in terms of, you know, when you moved on from Belarus, obviously, and sort of, you know, took your next sort of career sort of move, I guess, you know, um, could, you, could you talk the audience through that? Sure, yeah. Um, so probably after a year in, in Belarus, I already thought, you know, it's probably time for me need to get out of there. I've lagged my way through it enough. Um, and like, again, quite fortunately, I was going to move into a regional role, first of all, going to a few countries, doing similar things, setting up a business or helping the local managers um, set up this like, clone of Amazon. Um, and then through a contact at Rocket Internet, um, I was introduced to the founders of a business called Mavinga, which was based in Berlin. And um, essentially, it was a platform where if you want to move house, you can go to this website and um, they would aggregate all the different companies and uh, man van businesses. So you can kind of choose the best place or best company that will help you move house. Um, and they were growing really quickly. Again, this is you know, mobility 
in this huge sector, and this was one of the verticals that hadn't really been addressed properly. Um, they're growing really quickly, and they needed a head of sales for their international business. Um, and again, this was something which I had almost zero experience with. Again, I had, you know, coming up one year in Belarus, after that, I kind of thought anything was possible. If I managed to kind of do set up <laughs> Amazon in a country I have no idea about and a business I have no idea about, why not um, manage a sales team in Berlin? Might be fun. Um, so we had a conversation and the founders were of a kind of a similar background in terms of like thought process. So they, they were also like really young, quite fortunate to find themselves in this kind of position and were very much kind of like results first. So um, if they'd heard through someone that had managed to do something, then why not give me a chance there as well? Um, so I joined and I think initially the, t- the team we had was around 30 to 40 salespeople. The big difference being that everyone was actually my age with a similar profile. So these were people who'd like graduated probably you know, similar uh, universities in the UK, moved across to Berlin. Um, and so managing coming into a new team, people who you know, pretty much the similar background to myself was quite challenging. Um, but yeah, very fast paced. And yeah, I was there for just six months actually. Um, the team kind of doubled in size during that time. There were a ton of different changes. Um, and yeah, after that, I kind of really understood that sales wasn't kind of uh, the path I wanted to take, definitely not long term. And fortunately, I had the opportunity to join another business um, in a more general role, similar. I guess, in terms of responsibilities to what I was doing in Belarus, a country management role. Um, but now for a business that was operating in Paris, just in kind of developed markets, it's called La Belle Assiette. So it's a, another platform where you can book something. And in this case, is you can book a private chef to cook for you at home. So I kind of joined that business. Um, they were still very early stage in the UK and I kind of helped them launch, launch and grow the business. Um, locally here in London. And how, how are the cooking skills on the back of it? <laughs> they were definitely, I mean, I, I always thought like my cooking was decent until I joined and my Belasier and realized, you know, following a recipe is nowhere near as good as being even an amateur chef. It's a totally different ball game, let alone professionals. Um, but but it was very cool. Like the main thing, not only obviously like tasting lots of lots of food from chefs and having that experience a few times, um, but actually like the culture in in our Parisian office was really unique, and everything was centered around food. So there was a big kitchen, and um, most days people would come together and actually cook lunch, um, and take probably an hour and a half to get it done properly, <laughs> which is pretty cool. Um, That's awesome. something out there. I probably at some point if I if I or if and when I start a business, something I'd probably like to replicate. It's a really good way to like, get to know people you work with. Absolutely. What what's your what's your signature dish on the back of it? Was there was anything particular <laughs> any any dishes that you particularly learned? Signature dish. <laughs> it's a tough one. <laughs> um, I don't know. 
something probably really basic, but I think I'm just probably just because of repetition, um, like poached eggs, uh, it's not even difficult, is it? But like a poached eggs, avocado. Gotta get it right though. I think I'm just, yeah, exactly. If you get it wrong, then it's just embarrassing. But I think I've managed to perfect it with a lot of practice. Yeah, you're in the right place. You're, you've got the right market now with London as opposed to Minsk, I think, for that one. Um, yeah. <laughs> it's probably a, a more common one there, for sure. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, obviously in terms of sort of, you know, bringing it back to the present now, Sam, and, and looking into the future a little bit more. Um, you know, you've obviously sort of, um, you know, had quite a lot of success. You know, you've managed from very early on in your career and, and things were, you know, obviously gone really well. You know, what, what do you think, what sort of attributes, I guess, sort of have fueled your success? Um, and, you know, sort of looking forwards in your career as well as you move forwards, what, what attributes are you going to be sort of leaning on, I guess, uh, to sort of further develop your success? And then the reason I ask this is just, you know, with regard to sort of Mana Search, for example, um, where Mana comes from, uh, obviously a, a Maori word in terms of etymology, meaning sort of prestige or power, sort of about sort of that driving force that sort of, you know, uh, leads to your success, I guess. You know, what, what would you say yours has been and, and you know, what, 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 sort of personality trait do you sort of build your career on, I guess? Um, it's a tough one, I think, also, because success is it's all, like, relative. Yeah. Um, I still don't, like, whatever I kind of achieve, like, the next step I take, I still kind of see people ahead of me who have been much more successful. Um, so it's hard to even pick out a few attributes. But I think probably just by way of the experience, the path I took, um just believing that anything's possible i mean experience is one thing but actually results kind of dictate at the end of the day um what happens so there are a lot of people who have a, a, tons of experience and will have more, more experience and probably you know on paper are more suitable for a particular role um but when you're actually in the position everyone has like 24 hours a day what do you actually do um and what what can what kind of results come out of that, that's always going to be the most important thing. So I think that's what I've kind of relied on, at least knowing that once I'm in a position where I can make things happen, then it's kind of a level playing field. And um, yeah, and kind of like believing that like anything really is, is kind of possible um, if you once you get into that situation. Um, but like looking forward, like I always think, when I start hiring at some point, even now in terms of like, when I think about who I hire and the future definitely for like my own business, what are the traits that I really value? I think um, being able to be like really open um, and honest about all the mistakes that have been made, I think is really important. So I think there's, there's a tendency to kind of like cover up the issues or some challenges that you might have had and exaggerate the successes and with the right questions it's very easy for someone because i've been one of those people who has, has done that and like attempted to exaggerate things i think it's quite easy with the right questions to kind of pry and get 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 to understand um the truth behind the situation um so someone being really open about that sort of thing i think is really valuable because it shows in the future i mean Particularly in tech businesses, there are a lot of failures which happen, and it's about like identifying what went wrong and changing it as quickly as possible, and not doing making that mistake again. And if you can't do that kind of personally by looking back on your career, then it's really hard to do it in in a business setting. 
Um, and I've seen this in every company I've worked at. There's, there's always a tendency to kind of, um, after the fact, make it seem like something's more flowery or it's like it went better than it actually did because perception is such an, a huge, a huge part of, you know, probably even society, but like business definitely. Um, sure. So, so I think being able to see through that and people being like totally honest, I think that, that builds a really strong, strong culture and it's something that I would, I really value. I think I'd probably want to focus on replicate um, when I come around to, you know, hiring people for my own business. And in terms of that perception and sort of, you know, I guess brand perception, even sort of marketing to an extent, sort of bring it back to sort of Luno. Um, you know, obviously with that sort of fairly um, sort of prevalent, I guess, sort of marketing campaign, um, you know, sort of on the, on, the, on the London Underground, sort of every tube stop had, you know, all your adverts on them, um, which, you know, we're, we're obviously sort of had a, a certain amount of controversy about them. Um, you know, sort of how was how was kind of that? How how was sort of assessing that? Sort of you know, obviously the uh, sort of ban on them came in. Um, obviously not the first time. The sort of crypto adverts have been sort of banned anyway. Um, I think sort of yeah. coin floor. I think earlier in the year got their sort of adverts banned as well. Um, you know, how, how kind of was that in terms of the impact on sort of perception? In terms of sort of how how sort of seriously sort of maybe kind of um, sort of took those sort of adverts. You know, uh, yeah. bannings. I guess. What, what did he kind of make of that? Yeah. Um, so I think the way it's been already a couple of months since, since, you know, the adverts are banned, we've already had a ton of new adverts all over London, which fortunately haven't been banned. I'd be surprised if, if they were, because they just said it's probably the most vanilla sort of crypto ads <laughs> um, ever, but, but we kind of need to start somewhere. And I think it's really good to already we've engaged with like the right people, the ASA, we already have like direct contacts there. So there's, there's definitely a benefit from, from that whole, um, that whole scenario. And also when we think about it, I mean, our ads, they, they launched in December, just when we went into lockdown. Um, and so it wasn't really a great time to start out of home advertising because everyone was locked down. But uh, on the other hand, um, the price started going crazy. Um, so it really took off yeah. in mid-December onwards. So we had those that kind of benefit because of the lockdown situation. Um, instead of being up for two weeks, our ads just stayed up on buses on the underground, and it was only kind of like April May that they started coming down. Um, and so over that period of time, if you have any sort of mildly ambiguous or you know any kind of messaging which can be complained about over time, anything, you'll always find someone to complain about something. And so if our ads, <laughs> even the ads that we have now, if you keep them up for like five years, someone will complain. So I think in the end we, we had maybe two or three complaints, um, which were quite reasonable. We took them on board, um, added a disclaimer to our, our new ads and kind of moved forward, forward with it. But it shows, I mean, crypto, things are changing quickly. Guidelines are really important. It's like a broader conversation around regulation. I mean, how will governments regulate Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies? And so when there's something, when there's clarity, then it helps everyone to you know, know what to do. At least now we have some, some clarity with regards to advertising. Sure. No, for sure. It's, a, it's, it's an interesting one, for sure. 
Um, yeah, I mean, in terms of sort of looking forward again, Sam, now, um, you know, what, what do you see as like the future for crypto? You know, obviously it's a bit of a, you know, I guess, multi-billion dollar question. Um, but, you know, on, on a personal level, in terms of your own personal belief, as, as someone in the space, as someone with a lot of insight into the, into the space as well, where do you sort of see it heading? Um, yeah, how much time do we have? <laughs> this is like a question. We could have a, like a separate five-hour conversation. <laughs> yeah, just about the future of crypto. I mean, like for me personally, like the where I where I sit and where my mind like kind of operates most of the time, I don't think too much about that. We think about like how to really get people on the train. And like other people will build the future of crypto probably, or will definitely be part of it. But we want to be kind of, we want to bring as many people into this as possible. Um, so I haven't given this too much thought, but what I, what I think I know is that um, not many people really understand what's happening in this space, even now. And there, there isn't really such thing as a crypto expert, because again, it's such a young industry. Um, like relative to everyone else, you could think that we're, you know, after like a year or two in crypto um, comparatively experts, but actually still people know very, very little. So um, because we can't really understand the landscape now, guessing the future is it's even, it's like, you know, fraught with, with uh, potential danger. So I, I don't think, um, I don't think it makes sense even to like think, um, or like guess what's going to happen, but like sure. just from like pers personal opinion, um, I do think there's going to be a huge amount of new talent that joins the space, which is the most exciting part of the whole thing. Um, so you have businesses, you know, when we go through these huge waves of interest in cryptocurrency, like we did earlier this year, of course, there's a ton of investment funding. Um, PR, which, which goes with the industry, and you get a, a lot of talent um, move across from other industries. And um, a lot of businesses like Luno, we now have like, an incredibly diverse group of people from different backgrounds, so from traditional finance, so like new tech businesses, startups. Um, and so I think that's obviously- Better, Russian, better Russian tech businesses, yeah. Yeah, classic, I mean, the classic makeup. Yeah, <laughs> everyone has at least a couple of those usually. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, so I mean, that's what I think could be really exciting. Right? The number of number of people going to be involved in this industry from different backgrounds, the diversity we can have within within the space, um, and then see what these people what these people can build, um, because like what we're coming up against or what we're kind of dealing with is still like one of these sectors which hasn't changed a lot. Finance just like for decades hasn't properly moved forward. Um, and so, yeah, I think like the rate of change is gonna speed up, but like relative to other industries, we need to understand that it's still gonna ta take a lot of time. Like 10 years in the grand scheme of things isn't, isn't a lot when you think about how slowly finance has been changing. Um, so yeah, the difference is because the benchmark is like Facebook and other industries where you know within five, ten years, they've almost changed society. Um, so we kind of expect crypto or any other tech business to do something similar, but it was hard to draw that comparison. Like, you know, 
it's going to take a lot longer for us to kind of get to the bottom of the current financial system. And with, with like um, sort of CBDCs, this is sort of my last question on it. Um, sort of with CBDCs now coming in, um, you know, do, do you see that as, you know, uh, sort of the, the way that crypto is going to move forward? Do you kind of see that as finance sort of 2.0, as, you know, a lot of people sort of call crypto sort of, you know, that complete, you know, overhaul of every everything we know about sort of finance, basically? Um, you know, how do you sort of see that sort of fitting in, I guess? Um, you know, and, and do you think, how sort of radical do you think sort of the shift is, I guess, in, in terms of um, overhauling the current sort of financial uh, sort of ecosystem, I guess? Yeah, I mean, CBDC is it's going to be definitely a big part of the, the conversation. So central bank digital currencies. and um, But there is still an important distinction between cryptocurrency, the way we see it decentralized, the technology behind Bitcoin and CBDCs, which is essentially like a digital version of a pound or a dollar. And in many ways, that's almost what we kind of use now. So like you think about like day-to-day life, we don't often like use cash that much. Um, I'm sure there've been months where I don't even touch cash anymore. Everything just happens yeah. like electronically. And that's, you know, essentially what we're going to see. I mean, still the distinctions need to be clear. We'll see what happens with the development of CBDCs. But again, it's a little bit like that sector of fintech businesses, which are building on top of the existing layer. And then there are other fintech businesses and DeFi as part of this, but actually fundamentally changing things. And there's just like a clear difference between cryptocurrency, which is decentralized, and like the underlying reason for that technology uh, versus CBDCs. Um, and it's going to take some time to work out like what actually are the differences and when they will finally launch because it, they've been circling around like conversations around that been been around for for a while like over a year for sure. which is a long time. Yeah, yeah, it is, isn't it? Um, awesome. Well, thanks so much, Sam, for for speaking. Thanks so much for coming on the the Searching for Mana podcast. Sure, my pleasure.